Ahab begins this morning with the words, O God, the strength of all who put their trust in you. I was reading a commentary last week, and it suggested that the theme for this morning's lesson was about faith versus self-reliance. At least that's the direction it seems that the college that our lessons would take us this morning. You and I have grown up in a society, in an environment, in a culture that teaches self-reliance. We take pride in our individualism and our independence. We, we credit that attitude of aggressive pioneer spirit for helping us to be what we are today. A strong, successful people that can stand on our own feet and take on the world. And that's not a bad attitude until you begin to believe it. The lessons assigned to this morning focus on placing our complete reliance on God. The colleague went on to say, we can do nothing without God. And as I read that prayer, I couldn't help but think about the connection between faith and self-reliance. What's that connection? Begin to think for a few moments this morning about those circumstances in your life that have caused you to feel self-sufficient. The children of Israel in the Old Testament lesson must have been placing too much importance on other humans rather than God. We know that during that time of history, the people appeared to have placed all their hopes on their young king, Josiah, who had become a national hero. He was the one who was leading the reformation of Israel, and the people looked solely to him for their leadership. Josiah was killed in a battle, and the people found themselves in a total state of disillusionment. At first glance, we can see a real correlation between the words of Jeremiah and those of the psalmist. This Jeremiah says in verse 5, Cursed are those who trust in mere mortals and make mere flesh their strength. And then in the seventh verse, he goes on to say, Blessed are those who trust in the Lord, whose trust is in the Lord. Now compare that to the words that we found in the psalm this morning. Happy are those who have not walked in the counsel of the wicked, nor lingered in the way of sinners, nor sat in the seat of the scornful. And the writer goes on to say, but their delight is in the law of the Lord. And they meditate on that law day and night. The psalmist compares the man who walks in the counsel of the wicked with the man who delights in the law of the Lord. Jeremiah talks about the man who places his trust in mere mortals and those who trust in the Lord. The contrast is not between the wicked and the righteous but rather it's between the one who trusts in God and the one who places their trust in something other than God. <coughs> Jeremiah learned from his own bitter experiences that life does not always follow the script. Quite often, Carl and I will be watching a movie or something on TV and she'll say, why in the world did that happen? Why did that occur in the story? My answer's always been the same. Well, that's the way the writer wrote it. You know, in the movies, actors always follow the storyline. But in life, it's not always the case, is it? From reading through the writings of Jeremiah, we know that he experienced times of doubt and dark moods of depression, which almost overwhelmed him at times. Maybe those were the times in his life when he was placing too much trust in man and not enough in God. Most of us know from our own experiences that there are certainly times when it's almost impossible to go it alone. And there are other times when we pay too much attention to the advice of others, and that can get us in trouble just as well. 
that only leaves us one other place to go for guidance and consolation, and that's to God. But we're not to do that after we've exhausted all of the avenues on our own. For Jeremiah, the solution was simple. We were blessed when we placed our trust in God, and we were doomed when we placed our trust in others. Cursed is the man who trusts in man, but blessed is the man who trusts in the Lord. This is an educated congregation. And if you have college degrees, some advanced degrees, by and large, I think your folks who have had and are having successful careers, your folks who have done well in your various professions, many of you have been recognized through the years and received awards for your achievements and accomplishments. And while I suspect that most of you are willing to share with some of the credit for your successes with your, with your teachers, your families, and others, for the most part, we tend to see ourselves as being fairly self-made. We're the result of our own efforts. We're people who have pulled ourselves up our own bootstraps and we take pride in that fact. And again, that's not all bad. But how does all that mesh with the scriptures this morning? I think this is the point where I can segue into Luke's gospel. You see Jesus' sermon, which also includes the word, blessed are you. I was reading through Luke's gospel last week, and my first thought was that this is Luke's version of the Sermon on the Mount that we normally read from Matthew's gospel. And then I got to looking at it more closely, and I, I realized that may not be the case. In Matthew's writing, he says that Jesus went up on a mountain and sat down and taught the people. That's the first clue. Because when I looked at Luke, he said he came down with them and stood and spoke to the people. But other than that, it, it certainly sounds like the Sermon on the Mount, doesn't it? There are numerous times in the New Testament when it sounds like the gospel writers are contradicting one another. I mentioned that last week when I was trying to talk about making a meaningful timeline out of events based on the readings from the gospels. I think this is another one of those, <clears throat> one of those occasions. They don't know me. Two things are happening. You have different men writing down their accounts as best they can remember them several years after the fact. But more importantly, they're not always writing about the same event. Hence their stories actually differ one from another. For years, I've always kind of just taken for granted that, that Luke's writing and Matthew's writing from the same sermon. But I'm never, uh, I was never uncomfortable with that. It's not like they were together when they were writing. It wasn't like they shared an editor to make sure that everything meshed together. I doubt seriously that any of the gospel writers ever read the works of the others. So I've always been comfortable with the aspect of the fact that some of the books described in the gospels didn't always seem to agree. Then the other day I realized that Jesus probably preached that basic sermon on more than one occasion. It wasn't like he was preaching to the same congregation week after week. And he needed a new sermon every week. Jesus was much more like the traveling revival preacher that used to go from town to town preaching some variation of the same sermons over and over again. So if you stop and think about it, at least half of every sermon that Billy Graham ever preached was the same message. Preached each night to a different audience. So within that in mind, I began to look a little bit more closely at the similarities and the differences in the two sermons. Luke writes a sermon that's much shorter than one preached on the mountainside in Matthew's Gospel, but the main difference is found 
in the, not in the context of the form or the length, but what he had to say. Matthew lists a number of blessings that God would bring to those in need. Matthew requires you saying that God would bless the poor in spirit. He'd bless those who mourn, the meek, the hungry, the merciful, the peacemakers, the pure of heart. That was a wonderful message, wasn't it? But in Luke's gospel, Jesus not only preaches about God's blessing, but he pronounces some condemnations as well. Jesus suggests that God will bless some lifestyles while criticizing some others. I suspect that most preachers nowadays spend a lot more time talking about God's blessings than they do about his condemnations because most folks don't really like to be criticized, do we? We don't like to be reminded that we have a sinful side, a sinful nature. We all like to believe that we're basically good people, and I, I wouldn't attempt to argue that point with anyone here. But unless there's someone here this morning that's foolish enough to stand up and proclaim that they're totally good, then we'll have to admit that we all have a sinful side as well as a good side. And while the gospel offers us comfort, it also gives us a challenge. Sometimes God has to chase us before he can bless us. He may have to get our attention before he can use us in his service. I expect everyone here this morning has heard the old adage, action speaks louder than words, or I'd rather see a sermon than hear one. These are old familiar sayings, but they're only partly true. Because I believe that most of us also want to know <clears throat> where someone stands if we're going to listen to what they have to say. And Christians need to be people who are willing to go public with what it is that they believe. You know, much of what we know about, <coughs> about Jesus is what we've heard from him and read from him in the scriptures. So let's listen to Jesus' sermon and see what we can learn about Jesus this morning. Luke begins by telling us that Jesus came down to a great multitude of people. Many had come to be healed, but they had all come to hear his words. You know, Jesus never really got the chance to finish that sermon that he started in the synagogue in, in Nazareth a few weeks ago because of the uproar of the people there. But today the crowd was hushed and eager to hear what he had to say. Jesus not only speaks of God's blessing to the poor, the hungry, those who weep, those who are hated for his sake. But he also pronounces some judgments to the rich and the oppressors. In Mary's Magnificat, she warns us that the Messiah would come and cast down the mighty from their thrones and lift up those of low degree. And that seems to be what Jesus is saying here. The scripture tells us that many of the people came not only to hear him, but also to be healed. They were seeking a piece of that therapeutic power that Jesus seemed to have. They weren't so much asking, <clears throat> what's God like? Or rather, what have you done for me today, Lord? Self-centeredness is a hard habit to break. But Jesus' sermon to the people that day was about God. He was describing what God's kingdom was to be like. You know, it may be difficult for many of us here this morning to relate to the poor and the hungry and the persecuted because most of us have had pretty but when we look at Jesus' message to the multitude, we hear him proclaiming a series of blessings to people. He says the poor will receive the kingdom of God. He blesses the unemployed, the dispossessed, the oppressed, those whom the world looks down on. He said the hungry will be filled, and those who weep will one day laugh. 
If that's all we hear of Jesus' sermon, we might remember it as one of the most compassionate sermons ever preached. But Jesus didn't stop there. He then moved on to the attack. He attacked the rich, those who had all that the world had to offer. He condemned all those who worked so hard to satisfy gnawing hunger for stuff. In the world, he's saying, wipe that smirk off your face. There's a new Savior in town, and things are going to change around here. Jesus called for the people to repent and believe. What does that mean for those of us here this morning? Jesus was saying, give up your agenda and trust in me and mine. To the people who heard him in the first century of Israel, he was saying, abandon your dreams of nationalistic revolution and trust in God's kingdom here on earth. To all of us, he says, turn the other cheek, walk the second mile. By losing your life, you'll gain a life of joy. With Jesus' blessing comes a challenge. Jesus' word. <coughs> Jesus' words of warning to the rich was not a condemnation of all wealthy. When Jesus told the rich young ruler to go and sell everything he had and follow him, he wasn't condemning the young man's wealth, but rather he was acknowledging that God's kingdom is meant to be more important than our lives than anything else that the world has to offer us. I believe he'd tell us this morning that how we use our wealth to further the kingdom is one of the ways that we'll be judged one day. The scriptures are filled with stories of people who were called to give up all that they had in order to follow Jesus. Many died because of their faith. We today are not so much called to die for Jesus as we are to live for him. The Christian struggle and the Christian glory still exists. Our challenge this morning is to determine where we choose to place our reliance. Do we look inwardly to our own skills and abilities to choose achieve those things in life that we need or important? Or do we place our faith and trust in God? The answer seems simple. Living it out in our daily lives is another thing. Jeremiah said, blessed is the man who trusts in the Lord. Jesus said, blessed are those who weep for one day they'll laugh. May you come to know the joy that only God can give. And may you trust in him and all that you do in the days to come. Thank you.